Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Richard Heinberg will join us to discuss fracking. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the rapid spread of hydraulic fracturing, otherwise known as fracking, has temporarily boosted U.S. natural gas and oil production and sparked a massive environmental backlash in communities across the country. The fossil fuel industry is trying to sell fracking as the biggest energy development of the century with slick promises of American energy independence and benefits to local economies. Well, a new book, Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future, casts a critical look at the oil industry hype that has hijacked American America's energy independence. The author, Mr. Richard Heinberg, is the award-winning author of 10 previous books, including The Party's Over, Power Down, and The End of Growth. And uh, we're very pleased uh, to have you today on the program. Uh, Mr. Heinberg, welcome to the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written, again, called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. Um, I'm curious, maybe first, before we get into this whole issue of fracking, it's driven by this concept of peak oil. Sure. Peak oil is is really a conversation that's been going on among petroleum geologists and engineers for for years, and it, it all really centers on the the, the fact that oil is a, a depleting non-renewable resource. So as time goes on, we extract it using the low-hanging fruit principle. We get the easy, cheap stuff first, and and then with every passing year, the amount of effort required increases. Over the last 10 years, the oil industry has increased its investment about double, about 100%, and also doubled the number of wells drilled. And yet, actually, over the last decade, the price of oil has increased dramatically, and the total amount of oil brought brought to market hasn't increased very much at all. So this would be evidence that we're approaching the point where point of diminishing returns, essentially, where it just is no longer possible to, to increase the amount of affordable oil available to modern industrial economies. And that could be a a big turning point because, of course, we're enormously dependent on oil for virtually all of our transportation. And is there sort of a timeline for when point of no return hits? Well, back in 1998, uh, two petroleum geologists named Colin Campbell and Jean La Herrera published an article in Scientific American where they uh, suggested that regular conventional oil would would peak out before about 2010. And if you added in the unconventional oil, the tar sands and and heavy oil and polar oil and, and deep water oil and so on, that would all top out roughly around 2015. And it looks like we're pretty much on track because regular conventional oil stopped growing around 2005. And if you if you subtract out the, the tight oil and Canadian tar sands and the other unconventionals, actually world oil production has declined a little bit since 2005. 
Of course, the oil industry, there, there's another side to this discussion, and, and it's being led by the, the, the heads of the oil companies who say, no, 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 don't worry, drive on. There's no problem here. And, and what they, of course, the main exhibit that they point to is the fact that U.S. oil production has actually increased substantially in the last uh, two, three years, almost entirely as a result of developments in North Dakota and Texas, the, the tight oil plays or shale sometimes called shale oil. That's a little bit misleading because there's a, a totally different resource out west in Colorado called oil shale, so it's it's potentially confusing. But if, if we call this stuff tight oil because it's in tight reservoirs, low porosity, low permeability rocks, that's more accurate. So even though uh, production seems maybe going up in certain areas, what about demand? Is, is that also growing up, or, or do you think supply can meet demand? Well, demand has actually pretty much subsided, uh, at least growth in demand has subsided in the U.S. and Europe. The main places in the world where demand for oil is still growing are the uh, the quickly industrializing countries like China. And economists, some economists anyway, who look closely at this, hypothesize that it's, it's because these countries can afford oil at higher prices. We have to remember that the price of oil right now is very high at historic from a historic point of view. Back in 2000 oil was selling for you know, $12 $20 a barrel, and now it's over $100 a barrel, and we've kind of gotten used to that. But high oil prices tend to make economic growth harder, and they also suppress demand. And we've seen that here in the U.S. Demand for gasoline is down what it was in uh, 2006 wh when it peaked. And most forecasters see it leveling off or even declining more. Presumably also force technologies to try and become more efficient in terms of their oil use. Right, and we're, and we're seeing that too. We have the most efficient, uh, most fuel efficient new car fleet ever here in the U.S. right now, and that's that's largely because of new government standards, but it's also because uh, car buyers are demanding more fuel efficient cars. They, uh, not many people can can afford to uh, fill up the, the the big old gas guzzling SUV that uh, forty gallon tank. It might cost uh, hundred bucks to fill it up, and you know that's that's expensive. Uh, one possible solution is fracking. What what is fracking? Well, uh, fracking or, or hydrofracturing is drilling down maybe a, a kilometer or so, and then angling the wellbore so that uh, so that it becomes horizontal. So you're drilling instead of drilling straight down, you're drilling laterally into the oil or gas bearing layer to to improve the contact between the wellbore and the fuel bearing layer, and then uh, forcing. Uh, large amounts of water, typically three, four million gallons of water at high pressure through holes in the well casing to fracture the rocks to release the oil or gas. Now this is being done in, as I mentioned earlier, tight oil or shale gas reservoirs where the permeability of the rocks is very low. There's oil and gas there. Geologists have known about it for decades, but they didn't think it was worth bothering with because the rock was so tight, so impermeable. 
Well, this is about all the oil and gas we have left in this country. So uh, the, the oil and gas industry has has come up with technology to release the, the fuel from the rock, but it comes at a price. This is this is expensive technology. A new well typically costs eight ten million dollars to drill and frack. So th- there's some promise attached to this, but there's also some evidence that the promise has been overhyped. So, so really, the low-hanging fruit is gone, and we're we're kind of going after the tough stuff now. Is is it worth it? Well, this this is the question that uh, that more and more folks are asking because, of course, as you as you go down to lower and lower quality resources, the environmental risks and costs increase. We're seeing that also with the tar sands up in Canada, with deep water oil in the Gulf of Mexico. We saw the the Deepwater Horizon disaster back in in 2010, and with fracking, the the environmental risks involve uh, for example, dealing with wastewater. Uh, once you've pumped that three or four million uh, gallons of water down to frack the uh, the reserv- the, uh, the well, then what do you do with the water afterward after it's pumped back up? Well, you know there are different things that you can do. You can put it in a containment pond, but uh, it can leak from that pond very very easily, and that's been known to happen. Or you can send it off to a municipal water treatment plant, but uh, water treatment plants just aren't equipped to deal with water that is laced with chemicals that are that the companies aren't required to reveal, and also radioactive elements that are picked up when the water is deep underground. So dealing with wastewater is a problem. Then there's also the problem of uh, failed well casings, and uh, this can result in contamination of water tables. Now, this is very controversial because the industry claims this never happens or virtually never happens, but uh, there are a lot of anecdotal instances and some documented instances where this has indeed happened. And, you know, well casings do fail. The industry claims about 1%, but some uh, peer-reviewed studies have, have suggested it could be up to 6 to 7% of well casings fail. And when that happens, then, uh, then water tables are, are vulnerable. So compared to other uh, methods, is, is it worse than those methods, or is it we aren't technology to deal with the environmental impact at the moment? Right. Well, it is certainly riskier than the traditional, regular, conventional oil and gas that, that the industry was going after back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But for the industry, there's, there's not much choice. There's, you know, the, the only options left are the unconventional plays, whether it's deep water or, uh, or tight oil or, or, um, or tar sands. So really society has to make a, a, a choice at this point as to whether the, the risks, the environmental risks, and the increased cost of these fuels are, are worth it. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we, were, we really were beginning an energy conversation in America about fossil fuels, uh, partly because of climate change, but also because we recognized that we were so dependent on, on imported oil and, and there were some vulnerabilities attached to that. And of course, oil Prices were increasing too, but since the uh, the shale bubble, we've had so much uh, 
uh, public relations about this, uh, radio and TV commercials and print ads and, and so on, all telling us that America is about to become the next Saudi Arabia and that we have 100 years of cheap natural gas. And so the, the conversation has changed, and, and really America has put energy efficiency and alternative energy kind of on the back burner. This, this is a problem for the future because, again, these are still depleting non-renewable fuels. And my organization has run the numbers, and we believe that the, the promises for future, future production, that 100 years of shale gas and Saudi America, that, that's not based on good data. So really the supply isn't there that, that the industry is saying is there. Right. We, we purchased the proprietary data on 65,000 currently producing oil and gas wells that have been horizontally drilled and fractured um, here in, in the U.S. We looked at initial production rates. We looked at the rate of decline in production from each of these wells. We also looked at the geography where the wells were located. What we found is that there are core areas where production is plentiful and profitable for the companies. But the core areas are usually pretty small, usually just a few counties in each of the uh, geologic plays where, where the fracking boom is, is taking place. Once you get outside of those small sweet spots or core areas, uh, initial production rates are much lower, and the rate of decline in production in each well is very high, up to 60, 70, even 80 percent in the first year. Now, the industry has claimed that the production profiles of the oil wells and gas wells in the core areas are typical entire plays, and that's what's led them to make the claims that they have of future production potential. But we believe that those, those claims are wildly overblown and that, in fact, uh, we're going to see probably declining production of shale gas and tight oil before 2020. So their prediction is really based on the cherry-picking of best wells. That's what it appears to us, yes. Hmm. So what about the other uh, factor of this is that they're saying it's, well, it's going to create a lot of jobs as well. Right. Well, this, <clears throat> this is also problematic. Certainly there, there is initial economic um, activity around fracking for local communities. Uh, obviously, hotels do very well and restaurants and, and, and so on, but this tends to be a, a pretty short-term phenomenon. Usually, it lasts a, a couple of years. Most of the high-paying jobs that are, that are attracted to fracking are out of town. I mean, experts petroleum engineers and so on are flown in from Oklahoma or Texas, and once, they, once their job is done, they fly out again. And many of the local jobs that are created are pole dancers, prostitution is much higher in these areas, gambling, so on. So that's questionable. And then the tax revenues to local and state governments are higher as a result of oil and gas extraction. However, they're not high enough to offset the increased costs just from increased road damage. It takes about 2,000 18-wheel tractor-trailer trips per well to bring in the water, the chemicals, the, the drilling rig itself, and so on, and then to cart these things away when, when all said and done. And that creates a lot of road damage. And we're talking, again, about tens of thousands of wells, so it adds up. And it turns out when, when we did the numbers with Texa, Texas and Oklahoma that the amount of, uh, of road damage uh, outpaced, considerably outpaced the tax revenues. 
Uh, I mean, so overall, it sort of sounds like this is not really a very sustainable industry, a sustainable source of energy. How is it that it's gotten to the point where it's gone through a boom and oversold, if you will? Right. Well, you know, the the, uh, the companies that are leading the way, companies like Chesapeake, Devon, XTO, Range Resources, and so on, they all got out early on and, and bought leases to thousands, millions of acres in some cases. And those leases carried a clause that said they had to be drilled within the first three to five years. So the companies had to drill faster, actually, than was economic for them uh, because they drove down the price of, of natural gas in this country from, it was about $12 a thousand cubic feet in 2005, and, it, and they drove it down below $2 a thousand cubic feet to the point where really they were losing money on actual production. So the companies have been able to maintain profitability by concentrating on, on liquids, natural gas liquids and oil, which uh, the price of those is much higher than than for natural gas itself, and also by dumping leases on uh, on other companies, selling leases, for example, to the majors like Exxon and Shell, or to uh, uh, the foreign uh, companies, the Chinese oil companies, and so on. And Shell, which which bought a lot of these leases a few years ago, just announced a two billion dollar write down. Apparently, these are leases in non-core areas, and they they have finally realized that they they can't make money drilling in uh, in these areas. So it's ended up being a kind of real estate pump and dump operation for for many of the companies. Big companies just didn't know what they were buying. Right, right. And uh, and we're we're likely to see more of these write downs as as time goes on. It's it's just opinion, but it it, it appears to be sort of the next uh, stock market or or Wall Street bubble that's going on right now. I mean, we we've seen the uh, the the the, uh, the internet bubble uh, around 2000 and the and the real estate bubble of the last decade, and and it appears that the shale that the, the uh, shale craze is is really just the next the next bubble, and it's it looks as though it's about ready to burst. So what happens after it goes pop? Well, after it goes pop, we see higher uh, natural gas prices, lower production. U.S. oil production will start to start to level off and, and decline again as well. You know, this this is this is not hard to to foresee once you once you have the numbers in place. And the, the companies, of course, are seeking to promote natural gas exports right now as a way of staying profitable. In in fact. The U.S. is still a net natural gas importer. We import natural gas from Canada. And actual shale gas production for most of the plays has already entered a, a plateau or decline phase. The only play that's still increasing in production is the Marcellus in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, West Virginia. But nevertheless, the, the companies are promoting exporting natural gas from the U.S. to Europe, uh, South Korea, and Japan because prices are so much higher there, whereas here natural gas is selling for $3 and change per thousand cubic feet. In those countries, it's going for uh, $12 to $17, so uh, they can get higher prices. And in, in the process, of course, that would raise prices for natural gas here in the U.S. because, of course, if they could get a higher price elsewhere, they'd sell as much as they could uh, in LNG and uh, and that would lower the supply for North America and and uh, utilities, 
plastics and chemicals company, the fertilizer industry, all would be paying higher prices for natural gas, which, of course, would negate one of the sales points for the shale revolution, which was the promise that we'd have cheap natural gas as well as plentiful gas for a long time to come. So what should we do about this whole idea of fracking, and what's the better alternative? Right. Well, there is a huge citizen uprising against fracking going on all throughout fracking country. There are hundreds of ad hoc environmental organizations that have sprung up from out of nowhere. This is not the Sierra Club or or NRDC. This is these are new organizations, mostly populated by people who are not traditional environmental activists. They just see what's going on in their towns and their counties, and they've they're fed up. They've had enough. So. Probably increased regulation of fracking is inevitable, and by the time that happens, the boom itself is probably going to be uh, subsiding. Clearly, we need to move to more sustainable, long-range energy sources that can supply America for decades and centuries rather than just for another few years. And, of course, we're talking about primarily renewable sources of energy like solar and wind, geothermal, hydro, microhydro, tidal, wave. There's a, a wide variety of renewable energy sources they all have their drawbacks. Uh, they tend to be expensive. They tend to be intermittent. But at the end of the day, that's what we're going to be left with, and the sooner we develop them, the better. Is your impression that uh, it's just going to take running out of oil before we get to the, the point where we're, we're going to actually start trying to develop that, or, or do you think officials in government are, are starting to think seriously about alternative fuels? Sources? Well, the development of alternatives is occurring faster in some other countries. In this country, unfortunately, we, are, we have dragged our feet, and the reason it's important to get out ahead of the market price, if we, it's true, if we just wait for oil, gas, and coal to become more scarce, they'll get more expensive, and that will, that will help to drive the trend transition to alternative sources of energy. The problem is if we wait for those price signals, if we wait for the market to take care of it, we will have waited too long because it takes not just months or years but decades to make a complete energy transition. And it's also going to take an enormous amount of investment capital. And if, if we wait until fossil fuel energy is just too expensive, then we won't be able to bootstrap the process with energy from alternatives. We'll still be relying on energy from fossil fuels, but that energy will have gotten too expensive to enable us to afford to still use fossil fuels for our basic needs like transportation and, and agriculture and sub subsidize the transition to renewables. So we have to get out ahead of the game. And unfortunately, that, that's, that, report, that requires policy. It's certainly tricky to get policy uh, going uh, these days, or any day. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, I'm curious, so we are running slightly out of time, if you maybe just have some final words on fracking and its false promise of plenty. Yeah. Well, I, I, I called the book Snake Oil, not because I think fracking itself is snake oil, but rather the hype around it, I think, has been very, very bad for our national energy conversation. And we need to move that conversation along and and toward an honest discussion about how much energy we need to use and where that energy ultimately needs to come from. The, the, prom, the false promise of plenty, the idea of the United States becoming the new Saudi Arabia or having, you know, 100 years of, of cheap natural gas, those promises are not based on, on hard factual data. They're based on extrapolation of a few good areas 
and ultimately hype. It's more public relations than science. So it's, it's important that we realize that and, and get back to reality. Uh, the new book is called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future, and the author is Mr. Richard Heinberg. Uh, Mr. Heinberg, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Mr. Richard Heinberg discussing fracking. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's time to play a game of the Grokatron 5000. Dave Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Snake Oil or the Real Deal. And so for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're Snake Oil or the Real Deal and a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Heinberg, you ready to play the game? Sure, I'll do my best. Okay, uh, here we go. Uh, person number one, Snake Oil or the Real Deal? It's the real estate mogul, Donald Trump. Well, I don't, I don't know Donald personally, but I'd, I'd put him in the snake oil category. Yeah, the reason I do that is just I mean, the guy's a, a speculative real estate investor, and you know that's that that kind of speculative investment is is what's driving the uh, the snake oil uh, fracking boom anyway. Yep. <laughs> All right, number two, uh, golfer Tiger Woods. You know the guy's at least he has uh, a. Uh, a, 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 a skill and talent that is remarkable that's been uh, honed and developed over over years so you know I'm, I'm willing to give, give him some credit and call him the real deal all right very good number three uh former vice president al gore ah al gore yes well you know al has put himself on the line with regard to climate change and he's gotten a lot of uh, forgive the pun but he's gotten a lot of heat for it and i, I think he deserves some credit for for uh, the work he's done over the uh, really over the past uh, more than a decade on behalf of planet Earth, so yeah, I'll, I'll call him the real deal. Number four, uh, it's the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. <laughs> Lady Gaga. <laughs> wow, you know I I'm not a big fan of popular music. I'm a classical music guy, but I've heard just enough of Lady Gaga to to recognize that this is a, a person who actually has uh, a, a lot of genuine you know mus musical ability. And uh, despite all the flash and glitz, you know I think there's there's a real artist there. So yeah, I'll say she's the real deal. All right. Uh, and finally, number five, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Barack. Oh, I have to give him a mixed view. You know, I can't I can't totally put him in either category, but I have to say I've been pretty disappointed with uh, in, in his first term. He did practically nothing on climate and he has heeded some of the industry's exaggerations about future supply of oil and natural gas uncritically. So I'm have to say uh, I'm leaning towards snake oil. 
All right. Well, maybe he can uh, redeem himself in his uh, final term here. <laughs> I would hope so. Too. I would hope so too. Yes. All right. Uh, well, Mr. Heinberg, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again talking about your book, Snake Oil: How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. Thank you so much for your time. Sure, my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Bye.